Please stand for the reading of God's Word. Continuing forward, the book of Luke, the fourth sermon regarding the empty tomb. I'll be reading from chapter 23, verse 50, through to chapter 24, verse 12. Please listen carefully because this is God's holy and infallible Word. Now behold, there was a man named Joseph, a council member, a good and just man. He had not consented to their decision indeed. He was from Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who himself was also waiting for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down, wrapped it in linen, and laid it in a tomb that was hewn out of the rock where no one had ever lain before. That day was the preparation and the Sabbath drew near. And the women who had come with him from Galilee followed after, and they observed the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and fragrant oils, and they rested on the Sabbath according to the commandment. Now on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they and certain other women with them came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared. But they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, Then they went in and did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And it happened, as they were greatly perplexed about this, that, behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. Then, as they were afraid and bowed their faces to the earth, they said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, and be crucified, and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words. Then they returned from the tomb and told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. And their words seemed to them like idle tales, and they did not believe them. But Peter arose and ran to the tomb. And stooping down, he saw the linen cloths lying by themselves. And he departed, marveling to himself at what had happened. And thus ends the reading of God's Word. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. In the beginning, when all was well, Adam and Eve walked in the presence of God, beholding the Lord face to face, hearing his voice. Yet, they did not believe his word. The presence of the Lord was with them. The Lord walked with them and talked with them. Yet, their faith in his word failed, even though they could see him. They did not believe his word, even as they heard his voice and saw him. In unbelief, they ate the fruit, and they were banished from God's presence no longer allowed to see him, to talk with him, and to walk with him. Now, for us, that most precious gift from heaven, faith, comes to us, we who cannot see the Lord. Being apart from the Lord's presence, yet being sure of his bodily resurrection and His heavenly reign, being sure of our inheritance in Him. We saints, saved through faith, stand apart from all creatures, both angels and beasts, in this regard. We walk by faith, not by sight. We believe God's Word no matter what we see around us. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. We see this in Peter's words. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith For salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice. Though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. 
that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, you love. Though now you do not see Him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Paul says to us in 2 Corinthians, so we are always confident knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. Talking in this section about death. For we walk by faith, not by sight. So this is the defining feature of every saint of God. And we will observe faith on display today. Again, as we walk alongside these women at the empty tomb. And hear the angel evangelists declare the gospel to them. He is risen. We'll watch the progression of their faith. And we will learn from them about the progression of faith that God takes us through. So as you remember, we looked at the first day Sabbath already. That This is occurring on the first Christian Sabbath day ever. We also looked at the Feast of First Fruits and how Jesus is the firstborn from the dead and many are yet to come. And we looked at the women at the empty tomb and we learned, did we not, of their strong affection and attachment and devotion to Jesus in contrast to His disciples, except for John, who fled away and are not even mentioned in the crucifixion account. And none of them, it appears, attended his funeral. So today, we're going to look at this tomb. Where did this occur? Why they went? The preparation of spices. What they found. The stone that was rolled away and the empty tomb. And as we pass by, looking at other Gospels, the fact that the guards were also not there. How they initially responded and what that reveals to us about the faith they had at that time. The two angels in God's mercy announced the resurrection to them, preaching the word of God to them again. They had heard it. And then they remembered. Their faith comes forth. We see the difference between knowledge and faith revealed to us. And some questions to know and to love and to obey God that we would grow like the women did at the empty tomb that day. So the text says, now on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they and certain other women, them, women with them came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared. But they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Then they went in and did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. So what do the scriptures teach us about this tomb? As we're walking there with these women on this morning, what was it like for them? Well, first of all, it was hewn out of the rock. We know this from Luke 23, 53. Matthew Henry says, In a sepulcher that was hewn in stone, that the prison of the grave might be made strong. We also know that it, the tomb belonged to Joseph of Arimathea. This is revealed to us in the wording of Matthew chapter 27, verse 60. When Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his new tomb which he had hewn out of the rock, and he rolled a large stone against the door of the tomb and departed. Matthew Henry says, He was laid in a borrowed tomb in Joseph's burying place, as he had not a house of his own wherein to lay his head while he lived, so he had not a grave of his own wherein to lay his body when he was dead, which was an instance of his poverty. Yet in this there might be somewhat of a mystery. The grave is the peculiar heritage of a sinner. There is nothing we can truly call our own but our sins and our graves. Psalm 146 verse 4 says, He returneth to His earth. When we go to the grave, we go to our own place. But our Lord Jesus, who had no sin of His own, had no grave of His own. Dying under imputed sin, it was fit that He should be buried in a borrowed grave. The Jews designed that He should, be, that he should have His have made his grave with the wicked 
should have been buried with the thieves with whom he was crucified. But God overruled it so as that he should make it with the rich in his death. As we see in Isaiah 53 verse 9. What else do we know about this tomb? It was a new tomb. It had not been used. No one had lain in that tomb before. We've mentioned this in passing in prior sermons. Luke 23, 53, Then he took it down, wrapped it in linen, and laid it in a tomb that was hewn out of the rock where no one had ever lain before. Matthew Henry says, But it was a sepulcher in which never man before was laid. For he was buried on such an account as never anyone before him was buried. Only in order to his rising again the third day by his own power. And he was to triumph over the grave as never any man did. It needed to be a unique grave. It needed to be a new grave. It needed to be a borrowed grave. We know also that this tomb was in a garden. This is John 19.41. Matthew Henry says about this, that in a sepulcher in a garden, Christ's body was laid. In the garden of Eden, death and the grave first received their power. And now in a garden they are conquered, disarmed, and triumphed over. In a garden, Christ began His passion, and from a garden He would rise and begin His exaltation. Christ fell to the ground as a corn of wheat, and therefore was sown in a garden among the seeds. For His dew is as the dew of herbs. He is the fountain of gardens. We are told in the Song of Solomon, chapter 4, verse 15. In addition, not only was it a new tomb in which no one had been laying, a borrowed tomb in a garden hewn out of stone, but it was nearby the crucifixion. John 19, 41 and 42, Now in the place where He was crucified there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So there they laid Jesus because of the Jews' preparation day, for the tomb was nearby. We see the Lord's beautiful providence in providing for their love towards Jesus in a way that did not tempt them to break the Sabbath. Matthew Henry says, Observe here the deference which the Jews paid to the Sabbath and to the day of preparation. Before the Passover Sabbath, they had a solemn day of preparation. This day had been ill-kept by the chief priests who called themselves the church, but was well-kept by the disciples of Christ who were branded as dangerous to the church. And it is often so. They would not put off the funeral till the Sabbath day because the Sabbath is to be a day of holy rest and joy with which the business and sorrow of a funeral do not well agree. They would not drive it too late on the day of preparation for the Sabbath. What is to be done the evening before the Sabbath should be so contrived that it may neither entrench upon Sabbath time nor indispose us for Sabbath work. The Lord reveals to us in the way that He, in His infinite and eternal wisdom, designed it to emphasize in the surrounding timing God's Sabbath to His people. What else do we know about this tomb? It was sealed and there were guards placed by the tomb. And this cruel, malicious act was done on the Jewish Sabbath. The text tells us, on the next day, which followed the day of preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees gathered together to Pilate. So what followed the day of preparation? The Sabbath day. What were the Jews doing? They gathered together to Pilate saying, Sir, we remember while he was still alive how that deceiver said, After three days I will rise. Therefore command that the tomb he may be made secure until the third day lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say to the people he has risen from the dead. So the last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard, go your way, make it as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and setting the guard. Matthew Henry says, His enemies did what they could to prevent his resurrection. What they did herein was the next day that followed the day of preparation. That was the seventh day of the week, the Jewish Sabbath, yet not expressly called so, but described by this paraphrasis because it was now shortly to give way to the Christian Sabbath, which began after. Now, one, all that day Christ lay dead in the grave, 
Having for six days labored and done all his work, on the seventh day he rested and he was refreshed. Note also too, on that day the chief priests and Pharisees, when they should have been at their devotions, asking pardon for the sins of the week past, were dealing with Pilate about securing the sepulcher and so adding rebellion to their sin. They that had so often quarreled with Christ for works of the greatest mercy on that day were themselves busied in a work of the greatest malice. So, the lifeless body of Christ our Lord was laying in a man-made cave tomb, borrowed, belonging to another man, that had been hewn out of the rock within a garden very near, near the hill of Calvary where he was crucified. This tomb belonged to Joseph of Arimathea. And it's likely the garden belonged to him as well. The doorstone of the garden tomb was rolled into place by Joseph, a very large stone. Then on the Sabbath, the Pharisees and chief priests sealed the tomb and set a guard of soldiers to make sure Christ's body was not stolen. Before this new, borrowed, sealed, guarded, man-made cave garden tomb, the women arrived around dawn that morning of first fruits, the first of many Christian Sabbath days of new life. So here we are with them. Why were they there? They were bringing their prepared spices because of their love for Jesus. Now on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they and certain other women with them came to the tomb bringing the spices which they had prepared. They came as soon as they could have light to love on Christ with their spices. Now they had enough knowledge to know that this would have been the time of resurrection as well. But that's not why they were there. The Lord often brings us to places using mistaken beliefs in our minds to bring us to places of blessing. Matthew Henry says, The zeal of these good women for Christ did continue. The spices which they had prepared the evening before the Sabbath at a great expense they did not upon second thoughts when they had slept upon it, dispose of otherwise, suggesting to what purpose is this waste? But they brought them to the sepulcher on the morning after the Sabbath, early, very early. It is a rule of Christian charity. Every man, according, to he, according as he purposes in his heart, so let him give. What is prepared for Christ, let it be used for him. And notice is taken of the names of these women. Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James. Grave, matronly women, it should seem they were. Let's note that they went to see and to touch and to anoint a dead body as an act of love towards Christ, not thinking at all He would be resurrected as an expression of their mourning and loss. They were there with some faith, but not with full faith. Yet, their misunderstanding led them to the tomb at that moment. How often do we find ourselves led by mistaken thoughts to a moment of great revelation with prior motives washed away in God's light? Oh, I'm not here for the reason I thought I was here. What did they find as they arrived that morning? But they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Then they went in and did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. What can we say about this stone that was rolled away? As these good women arrive, with the day dawning around them, with spices in hand, they are first surprised to find the stone rolled away from the tomb. This was a pleasant surprise. They had wondered who would roll the stone away for them. This is, we are told this in Mark 16, verse 3. They were talking about it. How are we going to get this big stone out of the way? Now, this impediment is removed. They'll be able to go in easily and put their spices on the dead body. Matthew Henry says, They said among themselves as they were coming along and now drew near the sepulcher, Who shall roll us away the stone from the door of the sepulcher? For it was very great, more than they with their united strength could move. They should have thought of this before they came out, and then discretion would have bid them not to go, unless they had those to go with them who could move it. 
And there was another difficulty much greater than this to be got over, which they knew nothing of, to wit, a guard of soldiers set to keep the sepulcher, who, had they come before they were frightened away, would have frightened them away. But their gracious love to Christ carried them to the sepulcher and see how by the time they came thither, both these difficulties were removed, both the stone which they knew of and the guard which they knew not of. They saw that the stone was rolled away, which was the first thing that amazed them. Note, they who are carried by a holy zeal to seek Christ diligently will find the difficulties that lie in their way strangely to vanish and themselves helped over them beyond their expectation. There are hindrances that come between us approaching Christ. Some we know of and some we do not and He resolves them all. If we draw near to Christ, He will draw near to us. What happens next? They're pleasantly surprised about the stone being rolled away. And then they go in and Jesus' body is not there. Think of that moment. They enter in the tomb as they had planned to anoint Christ's lifeless, lifeless body with their prepared spices. They'd probably been stealing themselves for the shivers of anointing a cold body, especially one whom they had known so well in His warmth of life. But what? Wait a minute. What is going on? Surely they would have inspected every corner of the room there in that dawn, rubbing their eyes. You, you can imagine feeling even in the shadows, scrambling intensely to find his body. Where is his body? Beginning to discover that they're not there for the reason that they thought they were there. How do they respond to this? And it happened as they were greatly perplexed about this. They were greatly perplexed. What does this mean? They were entirely at a loss. They had no explanation for what they were seeing. They were beginning to wonder what could have happened. And of course, the Pharisees and the Jews, they knew that no one would really believe in a resurrection. People would steal the body away and then they would claim a resurrection. This may have been where their minds started to go. In fact, we see in other gospels someone said, where have they moved his body? That's the natural response. That's the forgetful response because they had been told what would happen. Think of it. These women who have been praised. These women who have been set forth before our eyes as examples to follow after. Even these women filled with this deepest affection that we all want to have. This firm connection to Christ that we want more of. Expressing their fullest devotion to Christ based on the faith that they had. They'd been with Him along His, his ministry journey. They did not remember His prior word promising resurrection from the dead. Think of it. It was no small promise. It was no little thing. It was Raising from the dead, they forgot. Because they had not believed it. They had not had faith in that promise. So note how in our flesh, brothers and sisters, even in the most obvious moments of fulfillment of God's promise, we will not remember God's word. We will probably be placed in that moment of time where the faith we have is outstretched by the reality that He has placed us in. And we will be perplexed. We will be confused. And they were even fearful. We will be afraid. Even as the Word of God comes to us, we will be fearful. This is God giving you more faith. Isn't just, you don't just go to sleep and wake up with more faith. That's not how it works. He takes you through these moments. You see, these women, even though they had faith that they were walking by, that's what brought them there, they were still walking by sight. 
And of course, it was a false sight, and they were still in a fantasy land, a land that they believed could not include resurrection. At least not then, at least not him, at least not now. See, when we walk by sight, we think that we're obtaining reality. We are not. We're deluding ourselves. And that's what they did. Even though God's word had already been given to them. Brothers and sisters, for you and me, as much as we've been exposed to God's word, there are truths that he has given to us in our mind that we know, but we don't believe. It's one of the key points of today's sermon is that God would teach you the difference between knowledge and faith. You can know it all day long and it will not save you unless you believe it by faith. Matthew Henry says, Note, good Christians often perplex themselves about that with which they should comfort and encourage themselves. So often when we go through these confusing moments, we get perplexed and afraid. Even as God's word comes to us, we'll still be afraid. What happens next? God brings his word. Two angels announced the resurrection in verses 4 through 7. And it happened as they were greatly perplexed about this, that behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. Then as they were afraid and bowed their faces to the earth, they said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Now, I'm going to pause. And I'm going to point out something. What they do not say. They do not say, And soon you will see it and have faith. Soon you will see his body and have faith. That is not what they say. They say, Remember, how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again. The first believers in the resurrection believed it the same way we believe it, without seeing him. This should greatly encourage us. See, note God's mercy and compassion first to send messengers to these dear women in the midst of their astonishment and their disbelief, the confusion of that moment. You see, Jesus had already spoken to them. But the Lord knows our frame. And He speaks to them again via His angels. Parents, how often do you get frustrated with your children and say, didn't I tell you that already? Maybe today's sermon might prompt you to never say that again. Does God ever say that to us in His patience and kindness? Didn't I tell you that already? And He knows our frame. He knows that we need to be reminded. And a part of today's sermon, the take-home message is to live this life of, rem- of remembrance. Do you rejoice, brothers and sisters, that the Lord patiently loves you so much that he continues telling you the gospel over and over and over and over again. And do you understand that when you come here on the Lord's Day with the people of God and read the front of what the table says, do this in remembrance of me, that you actually are so sinful that you will forget Jesus Christ. You'll know about him. You'll have knowledge. You could get the multiple choice questions right but you will walk through your life perplexed and afraid because you're not living by faith. You're not believing in the world that He says this world is and who He is in this world and who He says you are in this world. You will do this. You know, parents, sometimes when when our children get in trouble, they, they cry and they're upset. And I know some of our little ones, after they get in trouble, sometimes they'll say, Mommy, will you give me a hug? Daddy, will you give me a hug? So what's going on there? They, they know that we love them, but they need to hear it again. 
They need to feel it again. That's every one of us. That's the life of faith. We need to be touched by God, reminded by God, over and over again, every day. Exhort one another every day. Didn't we read that today? Why every day? Because we forget every day. And if I only forget once a day, that was a great day. Now, there is a correction here. Note the gentle correction of God's message because they already knew, right? So, he does remind them in his kindness that he had already told them this. Why do you seek the living amongst the dead? <laughs> like, they, they should have been seeking the living. They, there's something in this correction. You've already been told that he's alive. Don't seek him here. Matthew Henry says, they upbraid the women with the absurdity of the search they were making. Why seek ye the living among the dead? But a reproof is given to those that look for him among the dead. That look for him among the dead. Heroes that the Gentiles worshipped as if he were but like one of them. That look for Christ in an image or a crucifix. The work of men's hands. Or among unwritten tradition and the inventions of men. And indeed, all they that expect happiness and satisfaction in the creature. Or perfection in this imperfect state may be said to seek the living among the dead. We can go wrong in all kinds of ways, seeking the living among the dead when we forget God's Word. So it's a maturation of faith. You see this in these women. It's, it's so beautiful. We don't look at them and go, oh, you know, they should have known better. No, we don't do that. We, we observe their lives and we learn from them and we admire them, and yet there's greater faith. And that's true for every one of us, no matter what... Where God has brought us to, there's greater faith. There's more faith. There's more reality to come. And it gets better and better, even though it hurts more and more to go in there. So there's a simple gospel proclamation here. kind of reminds me of Jonah's preaching. It's very simple, and the whole nation, the whole city <laughs> repented. It's really, we have, to, we have to say this over and over again. It is not in the eloquence of the preacher or the sophistication of the message. It is in declaring the truth and God anoints it with the presence of His Spirit and He gives us faith. Listen to this. He is not here, but is risen. Note the simplicity of the gospel message, brothers and sisters. Jesus Christ died and was raised up. Paul said it simply, I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. The gospel is about the life and the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ as historical facts that define this world for what it is and define His people for who they are. It's not. We can overcomplicate it. This is a short message. When you preach the gospel, tell people about Jesus Christ in His incarnation, in His sinless life, in His full satisfaction of righteousness in His life, in His full satisfaction of God's wrath upon sinners on the cross, and His resurrection from the dead as the firstborn for those who trust in Him. And His demonstration of His resurrection upon the earth and His ascension to the right hand of God. Tell them about Jesus Christ and let them know that God commands them to repent and to believe. It's not complicated. Now, I've kind of talked about this already, but we really want to focus on this. What is the proof that they give that what they say is true? Now, I don't know about you. If an angel says it, I think I'm just going to believe it. But that's not how God operates right here. It's held out as true because Jesus' word, because of Christ's word. That is the evidence that anything is true, is the word of God. He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee saying, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified 
and the third day rise again. Dear ladies, this moment is true because Jesus said it would happen. So see this closely, please. Those who were first to believe in the resurrection of our Lord were not called to believe based upon seeing Christ's resurrected body. No, not at all. They were called to believe in His resurrection based upon the word of Christ. They were being called to walk by faith and not by sight. It is not necessary to see Christ's resurrected body in order to believe. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. We base everything we believe upon God's word. And we believe that it is true because God gives us faith that it is true. Not because of any evidence or proof that was presented to us. Those are good things. This is kind of the essence of presuppositional apologetics. We present all the good evidence that God calls us to present. But we can never, ever persuade someone into the kingdom of God. And thus, no one can ever make any excuses for not believing. Do you see the importance of the Word of God held out to us at the moment of the resurrection of Jesus Christ? I hope this sticks with you. Matthew Henry says, They refer them to His own words. Remember what He spoke to you when He was yet in Galilee. If they had duly believed and observed the prediction of it, they would easily have believed the thing itself when it came to pass. And therefore, that the tidings might not be such a surprise to them, and they seem to be, the angels repeat to them what Christ had often said in their hearing. The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men. And though it was done by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, yet they that did it were not less the sinful for doing it. He told them that He must be crucified. Surely they could not forget that which they had with so much concern seen fulfilled, and would not miss... Bring to their mind that which always followed. The third day he shall rise again. Observe. These angels from heaven bring not any new gospel, but put them in mind as the angels of the churches do of the sayings of Christ and teach them how to improve and apply them. Isn't it shocking that these dear women standing there observing the crucifixion didn't remember these words of hope. Best we can tell, it didn't cross their minds. At least not with any significance. He told them that he would be crucified and rise again. Do you see how important it is to acknowledge that faith is a saving grace? What does it mean that it's a grace? It means you didn't deserve it, right? Now, in this case, it also is the kind of thing that you could never earn. And in fact, we've earned the opposite. We don't deserve faith. We deserve to be left in our world of self-delusion, our world of false reality that we build around ourselves, suppressing the truth and unrighteousness and creating a world where sin is acceptable and that we can deny the existence of God, and we do it as Christians, and I'm not just talking about what's going on in the news. Some part of these women had forgotten, and perhaps even suppressed this truth. But, God inhabited by His Holy Spirit the preaching of His Word to these women. The text tells us simply, and they remembered his words. Note how these women transitioned from perplexity and disbelief into understanding, joy, and obedience. Obedience. They ran and told everybody. They believed it. You see, they had forgotten the word of Christ. that They knew. They had the knowledge, but they had forgotten it. And this placed them, when they went through the moment where they needed to have faith, in confusion and fear. But then the Word of God comes to them, and they remember the Word of Christ that had been preached to them. 
and whew, they stepped into a whole new world. Light, comprehension, rejoicing, obedience. The grave is conquered. Death has no sting. O grave, where is your victory? I wonder if I will see him. Probably their next thought. And they run back to tell the disciples. What does it mean here to, to remember? It's an, it's an active thing. It's to be mindful of. It's to be recalled. It is a lifestyle. It is the lifestyle that we're called to walk in as Christians. When I say lifestyle, I mean you build your plans around actively reminding yourself, your personal paideia, your family paideia, if I'm saying it right, and even our cultural paideia. We are to build a world that is constantly saying, Jesus Christ has come back from the dead. Because we forget everywhere we go. What are the pur purposes of the monuments that we put up if we're Christians? To honor Christ and those who honor Him. To declare His righteousness. To honor His righteousness and those who also honor His righteousness. We forget what we hear from God, brothers and sisters. It is what it means to be human in a fallen world. Hence, we must build our lives on remembering His Word day in and day out. We need to hear the Word of Christ every day because we forget every day. So, when you're reading God's Word and you feel kind of bored because you're saying, I already know this, you have missed the whole point. You've missed the whole point. When you're reading God's Word and you say, I already know this, you say, yeah, but I'll forget it and I'm so glad I'm reading it again because I will forget it. Because I am a sinner and that's what sinners do. So it's an active fighting against the tide of forgetfulness of our flesh. And when we look deep into our flesh, it is not an accidental forgetfulness. It is an intentional neglect of God and His ways because we hate Him. That's what it means to be a sinner. That's, I'm talking about you and me. In your flesh, apart from Christ... Do you deserve His judgment? Yes or no? In your flesh, apart from Christ, when He judges you on the final day, if He did this apart from Christ, would He find any reason in you to forgive you and bring you to heaven apart from Christ? If He judged you and sent you to hell, would it be a just judgment? Yes, it would be. And that flesh that I'm talking to you about in you and me hates God. It's actively, constantly working in us Against God. Matthew Henry says, The women seemed to acquiesce. They remembered his words. When they were thus put in mind of them, and thence concluded that if he was risen, it was not more than they had reason to expect. And now they were ashamed of the preparations they had made to embalm on the third day him who had often said that he would on the third day rise again. Note, a seasonable remembrance of the words of Christ will help us to a right understanding of His providence. Praise be to God for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Amen. And you are those who believe without seeing. Amen. 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 So, how does spiritual amnesia produce living by sight? How does spiritual forgetfulness produce fantasy? The answer is self-deception. You create a narrative in your mind of what's going on in reality, and it's not. That's what happens. And it happens to Christians just as well as it happens to non-Christians. If we are not in God's Word being reminded of reality, we drift away. And the truth is, we won't live fully in reality until we die and go to heaven and we're glorified and we finally see everything as it really is. And live accordingly. So how does a life of remembrance produce living by faith? How does a life of remembrance increase 
our understanding of reality and our obedience therein. Well, you see the life of the women here as an example. They remembered the resurrection that Jesus had told them about and they lived in it. They stopped living in the fantasy of non-resurrection, the fantasy of a stolen body or whatever, what they were, whatever perplexities they were contemplating. And do you see how it led to decisive action on their part? There was no uncertainty in their minds at this point in time. They had come with a sure mission to embalm, and they got a new mission, and they acted decisively immediately. You see, a life of remembrance produces a life of understanding what reality is and what obedience looks like within that reality. Now, did these women trust in Christ as they arrived at the tomb? Did they have some faith when they arrived? It seems as though they did. They had some faith. Are you also thinking of the scripture, Lord, we believe, help thou our unbelief? We observe these women going through this process for us so that we can profit from it. What was revealed about their faith at the empty tomb? It was too small. They did not have the necessary faith to go through that moment and walk in understanding and obedience. They were confused and afraid. They had faith enough to get there, but they did not have faith enough to leave there properly. And God does that in our lives, brothers and sisters. It's a process He takes us through. So what brought these women relief from perplexity, confusion, and fear? Is there any, uh, anything in the text about them demanding to see the body of Christ? They believed God's word. The Lord God gave them faith in his word. They believed his word. So this remembering is an opening of eyes that redefines reality as reality and shows the prior fantasy as fantasy. And it blows it away. Drives away the mist and the fogs of uncertainty and confusion and all the suspicions of what's going on. Was his body stolen? What's happening? It's all driven away. And the reality is brought in. Did faith change reality? No. What did faith do for these women? Brought them into reality. So they embraced reality and lived in it. Can you see any analogous situations like this in your life? Where God brings you to the end of your faith and you're afraid and confused, perplexed, suspicious, wondering about what the answer to the question is. And then God's word comes into you. Do you need God's word to come into your life? Maybe you've already heard the word that you need to hear to be reminded of, to relieve you of confusion and perplexity in your life right now. We all need this growth. You could live to be a thousand years old. And say the same thing from this pulpit. We all need this every day of our lives. What was the fruit of their faith in Christ's resurrection? What happens when Christians enter into reality? Obedience. Obedience. They went and told the truth about Jesus. They went and spoke the same words as the angels. They believed God's word and they told others. And they lived accordingly. You see here in these women's lives and also in your own the difference between knowledge and faith, if you will. Knowledge. They had the knowledge. They'd heard the prophecy. They probably could have quoted Jesus if someone asked him what he said. But it had not impacted their view of reality. Faith 
takes the knowledge that we have and believes it is true in such a way that we enter into reality. The mists and the fogs of falsehood and fantasy are driven away. So here's my question to all of you, to each one of us. Do you have saving faith in the life, the death, the crucifixion, the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Do you? Have you seen him? I have not seen him. Do you believe in him? Praise be to God. He has granted you saving faith. Do you see this obedience in your life? This simple fruitfulness that tells others and declares the gospel and speaks of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ everywhere you go? The victory over death that is ours? The victory over the devils of hell that is ours? The victory over all the forces of darkness that come against the people of God? Yesterday, today, and forever, this victory is ours. Do you go forth and live this and tell others? Finally, when you look at your life, is your life a remembering life? A life that understands your propensity to forget the truth of God's Word. and So that when you go to God's Word, it's not for this constant search for something new. It's a real snag for a lot of Christians. Especially, I would say, those of our ilk who in many ways tend to overemphasize the mind and the intellectual and the academic over and against the heart and the affections. Always looking for that new thing to learn. It's good to learn new things from Scripture. I hope you will continue to search for those things. But I hope you will treasure every time you read the Word of God and don't learn a single new thing. And you just say, oh, thank you, God, for reminding this forgetful sinner of who you are. And that for the next hours or days, by your grace, I would walk in this reality. Amen? Almighty and gracious Heavenly Father, we rejoice that Your Word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path, showing us reality. And we ask You, Lord God, that by Your grace You would constantly keep this light lit in our lives. And by Your Spirit, give us eyes to see the truth and to walk in it. In Jesus' name.